Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Too hot to handle? Not yet, but U.S. inflation surges in May. G'd up, business leaders demand climate action ahead of the G7 summit. And ransom regrets? Meat giant JBS admits it paid cyber attackers too. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. to all our first movers around the globe. Great to have you with us on a special C-suite edition of the program. Today, we'll be talking the cyber ransom menace with the CEO of IT security firm FireEye. Crunch time for couriers too with the CEO of UPS and Consumer Clout with the CEO of legendary US food chain Stu Leonard. It's less Consumer Clout though this morning. More consumers clobbered US consumer prices rising a whopping 5% year over year in May. That's the highest annual inflation rate in nearly 13 years. It's higher than expected too. If you strip out food and energy costs, core prices also rose to the highest level since 1992. Now, investors have been waiting for this data all week, and here's the reaction. It's a sort of yawn, like whatever. The Dow on track for a higher start, though inflation-sensitive tech stocks do look a touch softer there. I think investors ultimately still willing to believe any spike in prices will be short-lived. Compare contrast, China's central bank governor insisting today, too, that their country's inflation rate is, quote, basically under control, basically. Add that to rapidly depleting hopes of a big U.S. infrastructure bill requiring more spending. And you see bond yields, well, pretty well in check. U.S. yields remain around three-month lows. The story, meanwhile, in Asia emanated from the United States too. The Biden administration ditching Trump-era efforts to ban China-owned apps like TikTok and WeChat and the tech-heavy Chinex rising some 2.5% on the news. Some light relief ahead of what's expected to be tough talk on China at the G7 this week. And let's get to the drivers on exactly that. In the next hour, President Biden comes face-to-face with British Prime Minister Boris Johnson in the first in-person event between G7 world leaders since the pandemic began. They're expected to sign a new Atlantic Charter linking the two nations. With more, Arlette Sainz is at the summit in Falmouth, England. Cornwall for us. Arlette, great to have you on the show with us. I mean, there's a whole host of things, whether it's COVID, climate change, the challenges, of course, of bringing these nations together in pandemic times, even as they are in person. Talk us through what we can expect today. 
Well, Julia, we, we will see President Biden and British Prime Minister Boris Johnson meeting for the first time face to face in just the next few hours. And President Biden has stressed that part of his goal on this trip is to reinforce and emphasize that special relationship between the United Kingdom and the United States. But there are a host of issues that we are expecting the two leaders to address during their bilateral meeting. They will be signing uh, that new uh, Atlantic Charter with, with administration officials officials are really saying that this charter is needed to address the threats facing the 21st century. It's been over 80 years since the last one had been signed. So that is something that the two men will really be discussing uh, today. There are also other issues uh, that are of interest to both the U.S. and the United States. President Biden has taken a particular interest when it comes to Northern Ireland, and he believes uh, that Brexit potentially jeopardizes a peace agreement in Northern Ireland. That is an issue that he is expected to bring up with the British prime minister, though officials say that he doesn't intend to be confrontational uh, as they discuss those matters. But in addition to the substance, there is everything about that personal relationship between the two. Biden has spent many years uh, cultivating relationships with foreign leaders, but this is the first time he'll be sitting down with Boris Johnson. They've held a few phone calls uh, since Biden has taken office. And even before he had taken office, Biden recognized there is a warm relationship between President Trump and Boris Johnson at one point, even saying that Johnson Johnson was the physical and emotional clone of the president. But we will see if any of that type of those comments, I don't think that will be playing out in this meeting. But we will see what the two men are like interacting uh, as they are leading these two countries that have been closest of allies for so many years. Yes, body language at these things always fascinating, perhaps less so than we've seen with previous administrations, but uh, something I'm looking forward to as well. Arlette Sines, great to have you with us. Thank you. And we'll have more live coverage of the summit throughout the day here on CNN. Now, as G7 leaders prepare to discuss the climate emergency, there's a double call for action coming from corporate America. Investors with more than $40 trillion under management are telling world leaders to step up their climate game. And a separate letter urging the U.S. markets regulator to mandate climate disclosures. Claire Sebastian has all the details on this. Let's start with the first point first. This is a call by huge investment managers, businesses around the world saying, look, governments have to do more to tackle the climate emergency. Walk us through what they're saying. Yeah, Julia, this isn't the first time that we've had a a call to arms like this from the investment community. There was a similar letter, uh, in fact, last July. But I think now that we head into the G7, we've got COP26 in November. The U.S. is back in the Paris Climate Accord. And in the wake of COVID-19, when when countries are sort of rebuilding and retooling, the the moment it feels like is being seized to sort of rebuild in a different, greener way. So so what these these institutions, everything from Swedish, Canadian uh, pension funds, uh, American pension funds... uh, investment managers like PIMCO and Allianz, they're all joining together. And they're basically saying that government targets don't go far enough at the moment. And if they aren't stepped up, then these uh, institutions with their trillions of dollars in in capital to allocate won't be able to harness the opportunities of a greener economy. I want to read you a quote. They say, our ability to properly allocate the trillions of dollars needed to support the net zero transition is limited by the ambition gap between current government commitments and the emission reductions needed to limit global average uh, temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius. So they want all countries to commit to net zero emissions by 2050. They want them to stop subsidizing fossil fuels and to to sort of reinvest back in the greener economy. And they say that countries that that lag behind in terms of targets will be at a competitive 
disadvantage when it comes to investment. So leveraging the competitiveness between nations and really huge swathes of the business and investment community getting behind this. Yeah, whenever we talk about this now, I'm vividly reminded of the conversation I had with the International Energy Association's chief. And he was saying, look, what we have to do today is no investment in new fossil fuel supply projects, um, no sales of internal combustion cars, passenger cars by 2035. The electricity sector by 2040 has to be uh, net zero in terms of emissions. I mean, in order to achieve this, action needs to happen yesterday and it has to happen in such huge scale, which is why it's also important when you've got big companies like Uber, Salesforce, Apple stepping up and saying, mandate this. Regulators need to have companies showing what they're doing in order to address some of these challenges. The US Chamber of Commerce, less convinced, Claire. Right. I think the point uh, of this, this second letter that you referred to where, uh, you know, 180 investors joined with 155 companies and, and non-profit agencies, uh, they've got 2.7 trillion in assets. They're saying that they can't make the right investment decisions unless they have transparency into the climate risks that, that companies are exposed to. This can be everything, Julia, from physical risks to real assets, from sort of unexpected weather events triggered by climate change to, to what they call transition risks, which they say are posed by regulatory technology, economic and litigation changes in the, in the shift to a net zero economy. And their concern is not only the lack of transparency impacting investment decisions, but that these can have very unexpected effects uh, on financial markets, and that could threaten uh, financial stability. So, so that is key. They want the SEC to, to set industry-specific metrics. They want regular updates, regular reviews uh, of the rules, and that, they say, will increase transparency. But, but Julia, going into the G7, leaders are you know, under intense scrutiny. Boris Johnson has taken some flack on Twitter for, for, for tweeting a picture showing him arriving in Cornwall by jet, which is obviously much more carbon-intensive than arriving by train. He has justified this, this though. He uh, has said uh, that uh, he, he points out that the UK is actually in the lead in developing sustainable aviation fuel. Uh, he wants to, to get to jet zero as well as net zero. But yeah, a lot of scrutiny there. Yes, quicker than walking. I suppose he could have cycled, borrowed one of those Boris bikes, of course, from when he was mayor. Yes, mm. yes. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. Okay, back to our top economic story. U.S. consumer price inflation causing some agitation. Christine Romans is here. Christine, great to have you with us. Prices in May rising at the fastest rate in, what, near 13 years. But, oh, boy, if you're buying a used car, it's costing you some money. Unbelievable. Some of these categories, not just double digit gains, but really big, big gains for some of these categories. And the government ticking through all of these things that rose used cars and trucks, household furnishings and operation, apparel, airline fares, vehicles, uh, um, really just stunning across the board gains. It is really the story of the reopening, right? No question there. You've also had some supply hiccups that have caused problems in certain categories. So not only do you have increased demand, but you, because of the reopening, opening economy and the success of the reopening economy. But you also have these supply hiccups from what was an unprecedented shutdown overall here. When you look at that core rate, which strips out the volatile food and energy, that the biggest increase since 1992, which was a roaring economy back then. So the superlatives for this report are all <laughs> they are all there. The question is, is it temporary or is this something that's the beginning of something more dangerous that hurts the economy and the recovery overall down the road? At this point, uh, you know, a lot of folks are hoping that this is just working out the kinks of a, of a reopening economy and some of those supply snafus, but overall doesn't turn into something more, more dangerous. 
Yeah, I mean, that's the key question. At this moment, consumer demand is rebounding far more quickly than the economy can create supply to meet it. The question right. is, how quickly do we deal with those bottlenecks? And does it, and does it sort of filter away um, over the coming months? Christine, for that, to your point, you have to look at core. You have to look at things that are stickier. Yeah. Um, rent, um, uh, medical care services, things that are less easy to adjust downwards once those prices are paid. What do we make of what we're seeing there? Wages is another one. Well, you know, those are the ones that cause the concern. You're absolutely right, because they're not easily reversible and they have such a sticky is a very good word uh, to describe them. So watching that core rate really importantly here, the core rate increase from April to May was seven tenths of a percent. That is a big that's a big one month move. You know, it really is. Is it transitory or is it something that is longer lasting? Uh, There you're looking at the overall, not the core, but um, you know, that's what we just don't know. There's no blueprint for this, right, Julia? That's the thing that's so interesting to me. There is just no blueprint for this. Uh, in labor numbers, you know, we saw the number of first-time jobless claims decline um, or gr- grow, 376,000, but that is the weakest we've seen of the pandemic. That's good. You're seeing the, the, the layoffs slow, and you're going to start to see people rolling off those unemployment benefits. But so far, companies have had to pay up with recurring bonuses and one-time signing bonuses and higher wages to get workers back in. That'll be an important inflation number to watch, the wages. And we shall continue to do it. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. You're welcome. OK, moving on. Meat supplier JPS USA revealed it paid an $11 million ransom after a cyber attack shut down its entire U.S. beef processing operation. The company's CEO says it was a difficult decision, but it paid the ransom to protect customers. Brian Fung joins me now. Brian, a few details in this that are are quite remarkable. They paid the money. They paid in Bitcoin, I believe. And they paid critically after most of the facilities were back online because they were concerned about potential further threats. And this is the challenge. Yeah, Julia, this is just a tremendous amount of money we're talking about here. $11 million dollars. Uh, paid by you know one of, the, one of the largest U.S. meat processors uh, in the country um, to these hackers that essentially held the company hostage, um, and the CEO is saying that um, it had to he had to make this payment in order to ensure that uh, his company continued to to function and serve uh, both customers and, and shareholders here. Um, what's really interesting about this is that when you think about the um, amount of ransom that Colonial Pipeline paid to its hackers um, just uh, you know a number of weeks ago, 4.4 million. Now compare that to the 11 million we're talking about today. That's more than twice uh, what Colonial paid. Um, so this is truly just by all uh, accounts, just a, a staggering amount of money. And uh, when I talk to cybersecurity experts, they say this is the fundamental problem for uh, for companies that are hit by ransomware. It's this calculation of, is it worth it to me to pay a little bit of money up front, a few million up front in order to forestall bigger, uh, more troublesome headaches down the road if this ransomware problem spirals out of control? And for many companies, that calculation is yes, it is worth it. And uh, that is the problem that uh, U.S. authorities and many cybersecurity experts say is the biggest problem because ransomware is fundamentally a financially motivated crime. And so as long as companies are willing to pay up uh, these ransoms, 
the more it's going to encourage these hackers. And the problem is just going to get worse and worse. So uh, for uh, JBS to be paying $11 million here to uh, these Revo ransomware attackers, um, it really just highlights the scale of the problem and the determination uh, that the um, U.S. government is kind of up against here when it's trying to convince private businesses not to pay uh, these ransoms. Absolutely. All governments. And as you say, paying this ransom is a green flag. But what do you do? It's a tough decision. Brian, great to have you with us. Brian Fung, thank you for that. And stay with First Move for more on the ransomware risk. I'll be speaking to the CEO of cybersecurity firm FireEye just a little later. For now, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories. Making headlines around the world, India has just recorded its highest single-day COVID death toll. After the state of Bihar revised its figures Wednesday, the day's death toll rose to 6,148. Bihar had underreported its deaths by nearly 4,000 people. India has the second highest number of new COVID cases in the world. Singapore's health ministry says it will start easing its COVID restrictions next week thanks to a drop in daily infections. It will allow gatherings of up to five people starting Monday. Right now, just two people can gather. Restaurants can resume dine-in services the following Monday. And Britain's Prince Edward is opening up to CNN about the pressures of royal life. This follows his nephew, Prince Harry's denial of reports that he had not consulted the Queen before naming his baby for her. The Earl of Wessex tells CNN every member of his family has dealt with such intrusions. It's very sad. Um, Weirdly, we've all been there before. We've all had excessive intrusion and and attention in our lives. Um, And we've all dealt with it in in, in slightly different ways. And uh, um, listen, we wish them the the very best of luck. It's It's a really hard decision. Fantastic news about the baby. That's that's great. I hope they'll be very happy with with uh, and that and and, um, um, and and you know it's it's um, um, it's just listen, families are families, aren't they? Really, you know, <laughs> they are. <laughs> Does it come on first move? Cyber scare FireEye CEO on tackling the cyber criminals holding us all to ransom, and customers hungry for a return to normalcy are forcing post-pandemic prices higher. So says the CEO of Stu Leonard's. He joins us later too. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Lots of buzzworthy stories this Thursday for you in the United States. The swarming cicada insects are attacking. Consumer inflation is certainly not lacking. And transatlantic tourists may soon be packing. The US and the UK are trying to get flights up and running again. I can tell you my bags have been packed for months. In the meantime, the US major is now trying to take flight pre-market. The Dow set to move higher after falling for three straight sessions. The inflation-sensitive Nasdaq also turning higher too, despite today's hotter-than-expected read on consumer prices. Flush consumers may be ready to look past the sticker shock at the stores, though. The National Retail Federation seeing US retail sales up as much as 13 and a half percent this year. That's more than double its previous forecast. Now, the mantra better, not bigger, is driving UPS, the world's largest package delivery company. Investors, though, slightly more cautious, perhaps, with Wednesday's Investor Day event. The stock closed down some 4%. UPS is shifting further towards healthcare contracts and serving small to medium-sized businesses. I also noticed a carbon-neutral target by 2050. There is lots to discuss. Carol Tomei is the CEO of UPS and joins us now. And Carol, we have much to discuss and great to have you with us, but I can't help but notice your uniform. And I'm assuming that's not a daily occurrence. What are you up to today? Well, 
Hello, it's so good to see you today. And no, it's not a daily occurrence, but I'm thrilled to be at our Roswell facility in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm going out for a ride along today with one of our package car drivers, as is our entire executive leadership team. You know, every day that we can spend a day in the field is the best day because we get to talk to our UPSers and our customers. And that's how we can learn how we can be a better company just by listening. Yeah, that's quite interesting because, you know, you have hired tens of thousands of what's known, I think, at UPS as PVDs, personal vehicle drivers. And that has caused some tension with your uniformed in, internal drivers. Just talk me through the balance of the economics, too, of using those that come in and drive their own vehicles to deliver packages and parcels for you versus the ones that you have in-house and are hired. Well, we have 540,000 UPSers around the world. Right. And since COVID, we've been operating at peak-like levels within our business. And then every holiday, well, our business, Christmas holiday, our business really peaks up. And so during the Christmas holiday season, we do bring in um, helpers or personal vehicle drivers to help during that very busy season. But it's just for a short period of time within the company, and we, we are able to manage through that. We really are totally invested in our 540,000 UPSers every day, helping them grow their careers. Yeah, and you're wearing the uniform to show it today, um, Carol. I mean, the company's had an incredible 12 to 15 months during the pandemic. Um, it helps to be a logistics business in a world where e-commerce rises off the charts. Um, just looking at the share price reaction to what you were talking about yesterday in terms of a forecast, do you think investors just got a little bit ahead of themselves or are you being a little bit conservative in terms of things like margin forecasts and, and how much money you can make over the coming years? Well, you know, I've learned over the years, I've been doing this for a long, long time. I've <laughs> learned over the years not to react to a day's performance in the market. And I will call out that since I became the CEO about a, a year and 10 days ago, we've doubled the market cap of the company. But yep. as it relates to the guidance that we gave yesterday, um, I think it was a little bit of investors got ahead of themselves and we were a little conservative. And during our conference call, we did try to re reinforce how confident we are in the future of our, of our company and our ability to deliver higher returns, higher operating margin and higher return on capital. Talk to me about the opportunities for Better Not Bigger because you are honing in on medical um, deliveries, on the small and medium-sized businesses, as I mentioned. I think you're also doing a lot of work on the digitization and just making it far more accessible, I know, for consumers as well in terms of getting, where, getting their packages where they need to go and finding out that information. Carol, how do you compete over the next two to three years as Amazon, for example, and I know they're the biggest customer for you too, or one of the biggest, um, continues to raise their own delivery logistics operations as well. Is there enough room for all? Well, if you look at the United States alone, the small package market is expected to grow from $138 billion last year to $195 billion by 2023. That's a lot of growth, a lot of opportunity for UPS to grow in the areas of the market that we want to grow. Not every package is attractive to us, candidly. We are leaning into the areas of the market that we can serve best. That includes small and medium-sized businesses, as well as healthcare. And in order to serve those customers, we are investing in 16 customer journeys that make it simple and helpful for those customers. That's what they're looking for. And what we find as we improve the experience, they stay with us. 
And then as it relates to healthcare, well, we're proud to be part of this of this moment of delivering vaccines around the world. We've been in the healthcare logistics business for over 20 years, but we were able to mobilize. We started by delivering over 250 million just COVID testing uh, kits. And because we were at the forefront of biologics, we were ready to deliver vaccines when the FDA approved those. As of late May, over 300 million vaccines. By the end of this year, we will have delivered over 1 billion vaccines. Yeah, and I remember having a conversation with uh, one of your exec team members about just the challenges involved in that. And I believe over 99 percent have arrived in great form, proper temperature and ready for you. So huge credit to um, to you and the team. Carol, I should ask about cyber risks in light of what we've seen and the discussion going on, given your importance in terms of logistics for not only the United States, but beyond. How focused are you on mitigating those kind of risks at UPS? It's top of mind for us. Imagine just the volume of packages that we deliver in 220 countries and territories around the world. We have 2,000 flights a day. So we're at real risk for attack. And we have stood up, I would say, best-in-class team that is putting a moat around us uh, in terms of protecting us for cyber risks. But we can never take it for granted. We are religiously focused on making sure that we are secure because there are attacks that come in all the time, but we are able to ward those attacks out. We're investing hundreds of millions of dollars to protect our company and it's top of our minds. Yeah, it's good to hear. And Carla, do you want to talk about your uh, climate targets as well? Because that's hugely topical too. And what did catch my eye was the target by 2023 for the 50% reduction in CO2 per package delivered. I mean, that's beyond anything else that you're targeting. That is a huge, hugely ambitious target. How are you going to achieve that? And is some part of this carbon offsets? So... We, are, we think it's important, you know, part of who we are is making the planet a healthier planet. And, you know, we emit a lot of greenhouse gas emissions, 37 million metric tons. So we're like, all right, we've got to take action to become carbon neutral. And we're doing it in a very engineered, financially responsible way. And this carbon density that you mentioned, reducing uh, the CO2 per package by 50% by 2035, it's not going to be easy, but we've got an engineering plan to do so. Carol, it's been great to have you on the show. Have a great day making that UPS uh, outfit there look very chic. Have <laughs> fun with your team. And, well, thank uh, you very much. And here I go to deliver you. packages. Great to see you. I know. You. Thank on you. the job. <laughs> Carol Tomey there. Thank you so much for your time. The CEO of UPS. We're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stock markets are open for business this Thursday, and we've got a higher open for the Wall Street majors. Call it perhaps some inflation rationalization going on. The U.S. reporting that consumer prices rose by a greater than expected 5% year over year last month. But investors still believing it's all transitory. Also today, U.S. jobless claims hitting yet another pre-pandemic low, falling further below that 400,000 level. Meme stocks, by the way, In the meantime, mixed amid news from GameStop that the SEC, the Securities Exchange, is looking into massive moves in its shares. The video game retailer says it's ready to cooperate fully with regulators. More on the memes later on in the show. In the meantime, Bitcoin also higher despite 
Fresh warnings from JP Morgan that it sees a bear market for Bitcoin, as well as ongoing regulatory concerns stemming in part from Bitcoin's use as a preferred payment for cyber criminals. And on that note, the CEO of top security firm FireEye warns we're being, quote, sucker punched in cyberspace. The evidence for that, well, it's everywhere. Hours ago, meat giant JPS USA admitted paying $11 million after a ransomware attack. Last month, the crucial Colonial Pipeline was offline for days when it was targeted by cybercriminals. Meanwhile, new CNN reporting found a doubling of cyber attacks in the EU over the past year, with a frightening 47% increase in attacks on hospitals. Joining us now, Kevin Mandy, the CEO of FireEye. Kevin, much to discuss and great to have you uh, with us. I want to do a deep dive on what's going on mm-hmm. here, but my first question is simple. Are we making mm-hmm. it worse by paying these ransoms? Well, you know, first off, nobody wants to pay a ransom. Start with that one. And that's usually the default beginning for all of these. But I think the calculus is different by industry because you have to look at the risk. And that's why you just said they're targeting hospitals, because if you're a ransomware actor and you break into healthcare and you impact the devices that maintain human life, the risk calculus is going to be very different in regards to payment of ransomware than if you run another type of business. So the bottom line, the ransomware actors are targeting specific industries and public companies, recognizing that the likelihood of being paid is far higher uh, in those industries. And that's the key. They're going for critical infrastructure, things like hospitals, like food supply, like fuel supplies, for example. Mm -hmm. Are you therefore in favor of banning these payments? Take away the incentive to do another attack. You know, it's tough and you'd love to have a simple answer. And really, when you go to the extreme, obviously, Julia, if you pay ransoms, you're propagating the challenge. But the reality is there are probably risk decisions that are made where if you're a hospital and ransomware hits you, you may make the decision it's better to pay now and de-risk our patients than the risk of moving your patients out of the hospital. So I think a ban is far more complicated once you get below the surface and you really look at the issues. I mean, I've talked to the CEOs who have to make these decisions, Julia. It's not simple. Nobody wants to pay it. Nobody wants to propagate the problem, but they also don't want to hurt human life. Yeah, and they've said in the last couple of days, we've heard from them that it's the toughest decision they've ever had to make in in a leadership position. And I couldn't agree more with that. So we can't be on the defensive. We can't and shouldn't be having to make these decisions. We should be on the offensive, Kevin. Let's explain why this is happening and why we're seeing this huge acceleration, particularly in the last year and a half. Is it about the fact that we're introducing vulnerabilities with greater digitization, working from home? Or is it just that the software that allows hackers to mount these attacks is is more available. Well, I think the biggest reason, Julia, these keep happening is we're only playing defense. The best defense in the world gives up touchdowns. That'll be my football analogy for today. And that's all we're doing. If you can commit a crime from 10,000 miles away in a safe harbor with no risk or repercussions, you're just going to keep taking shots, period, indefinitely. And sooner or later, they're going to work. If we don't find a way to impose risks or repercussions to those launching the ransomware attacks, over time, every company is going to have to deal with one. 
define repercussions then in this case? Because what we've seen, particularly in the last couple of cases, we believe is that these attacks aren't being done from the United States. They're being done from other countries, countries where the leadership right. has pretty little incentive, quite frankly, to do anything about these, these hack attacks or, or target the hackers themselves. So how do we create repercussions? Well, very simply, we're an international community. The Internet's connected all of us. It's only, you know, it's been around since the 1980s. We've got to figure out how we're going to work globally on this. If you want to be part of the global economy, the bottom line is I think there's rules you're going to have to follow and you cannot condone bad actors that are stealing potentially billions of dollars from other nations. So I think the answer is not just technological, Julia. Okay. It's also going to be diplomacy potential economic levers that you can pull, but it's gonna take nations banding together to figure out what are we gonna do about this? Because most people will think it has crossed the line of toleration. Status quo is no longer tolerable. Yeah, there has to be economic and financial consequences right. as well. Um, talk about the impact of digital currencies, because what we have heard in well, recent weeks is that these payments aren't being demanded in US dollars. Digital currencies are being right. given as an option. and that's how they're being paid. Absolutely, Julia, that's been the progression. It used to be if you're an attacker and you wanted to monetize your hacking capabilities, you'd hack into computers and steal credit card data when you'd purchase things, or you'd hack in, change applications so you could fraudulently order things. Now you break in and you can deploy ransomware or you can steal documents and extort the fact that you're gonna publicly release private documents Digital currencies are basically anonymous currencies. So you had the anonymity of digital currency, and now you can commit a total crime from 10,000 miles away from the victim, be anonymous in cyberspace during your attack, and be anonymous in cyberspace collecting the payment via digital currencies. So there's no question digital currency in its form today, how it's managed today, does enable cybercrime. I mean, in the Colonial Pipeline case, and we'll, we can come back around to that, the payment was recovered for, for various reasons. There has to be a protocol here. And I think what we also heard in the past week was that, you know, these CEOs, they weren't quite sure what to do. They weren't sure of the protocols. Fortunately, in, in both right. cases, they called the FBI and were like, guys, this is what's going on. Um, what do we right. have to do? It's the very mm -hmm. basics here in terms of companies. And obviously, you advise many of them on how to tackle these things, that we need a protocol. This is what you do. This is who you call. Sure. This is how the payment's made in order to try and be able mm -hmm. to trace the money and recapture it quickly if we can. Well, Julia, you're describing the age old problem with every technological advancement. Criminals figure out a way to use it. And a lot of times they're faster at innovating on how to use it to make money and enable their enterprise than the good guys. So there's no question we have to do a little catch up now and look at digital currency and figure out how do we manage it in a way that's meaningful and prevents all the fraud that's currently occurring with the enabling digital currencies. Okay, Kevin, upshot, are we winning this war or losing this war? And it, does it just mean more spending required both from the private sector and the public? Well, I think it's an ongoing effort. You know, you don't win the fight on crime overnight. Quite frankly, you're just always fighting it every single day, Julia. So just because you read the headlines, we're certainly getting better. We're certainly looking at ways for nations to respond more cohesively. And that's been the dialogue in the United States. How do we respond not just as individual companies, but as a nation to the cyber threat? So we're going to get better at this. And an international community, to your earlier point. Too. We're all in it together.
Kevin, you fantastic bet. to chat to you. Kevin Mandia, the CEO of FireEye. It's going to keep you busy, certainly. <laughs> Thank you for that. You. Okay, a big inflation number here in the United States. The cost of everything is up, including food. The CEO of Stu Leonard's describes what it means for him and his customers. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Inflation is jumping. U.S. consumer prices soaring 5% year-on-year in May. That's the hottest pace since August of 2008. And prices are rising for everything, including food at grocery stores. And someone who understands a thing or two about that is First Move favorite, Stu Leonard Jr., the CEO of supermarket chain Stu Leonard. Stu, fantastic to have you on the show. Oh, my goodness. I want to talk to you about rising food prices, but I can see you're injured. What have you been doing? Well, actually, rising. This is from dealing with all of our suppliers trying to get better prices for our customers. Right? <laughs> <You've been> wrestling. <laughs> no, but I. <laughs> no, but I. Uh, I. I just uh, fell off my bike. I got a little injury, but I'm okay. recovering right now. Okay, good. So, thank you. Basically, been holding back yeah. those customers that have been storming back after the relaxation That's of the COVID rules as well. <laughs> exactly. That's it. I think. Maybe you you need this at CNN too, you know. I know. I'll come and defend you next time. Talk to me about what you're seeing from suppliers in terms of prices, from consumers in terms of demand, and what you're seeing with prices, because that's what we want to know. Well, you know, Julia, we've been I've been in the business 50 years now. I've Mm. started as a kid here, and and we have a retail, you know, seven retail stores in the Metro New York area, and I've seen prices go up and down and all around over the years based upon supply. But I've never seen anything quite like this before. Um, we've seen our meat prices uh, probably go up to record high levels right now, um, especially the center cut steaks, the strip, the ribeye, and the porterhouse, because the demand is so strong with all our restaurants booming right now. So there's there's been an unprecedented increase in, in uh, especially meat prices right now. What kind of jump are we talking about? Well, sometimes you're talking about two, three, four dollars a pound for this stuff. Wow. And you know what? Our suppliers are great people. We have ranchers out west. We have shrimpers down in Florida. With New Bedford, they bring our scallops. These are all family farms that Stu Leonard buys from. And, and they're just saying to me, Stu, look, I put 100 gallons of gas in my tractor every day and that price now has doubled for diesel fuel. What can I tell the farmer who wants to pass along some of those expenses to us at Stu Leonard? I'm trying to absorb as much of it as we can right here. Like we have some great specials going on for Father's Day and, and even Fourth of July. So um, we're trying to absorb as much, but you can't absorb everything. Yeah, and also you make the great point. It's not just about food prices; it's fuel prices. It's all sorts of things that are contributing to this. You raised a great point, well, then you said, "Look, I've been watching this for, you know, fifty years." Do you have a sense of when something's just temporary, or when something's <coughs> meaning that it's going to be around for a while? In other words, is it inflationary, or is it just supply and demand right now? You got it. Well, right now, like our cold storage facilities are empty. You know, it's almost just in time right now. So capa- capacity <clears throat> is still there. Um, so demand is just so strong right now. I think that's driving a lot of prices. My fingers are crossed that prices will come back down again. I think a little bit of this is going to be inflationary, but I think 
there's a lot of it right now that I'm noticing, you know, it's just hard to get some items right now. You know, you have to beg our suppliers to even get chicken wings right now. You know, there's a chicken war. Look at Burger King. Look at McDonald's. Everybody has a chicken sandwich now. I mean, someone's got to make all that chicken for them. And there's a shortage of, of product right now in certain areas. Once that gets filled in, I think we'll see prices come down. Yeah, demand's just come roaring back so quickly. As we were saying earlier on the show, yeah. it's just tough to adjust supply at the same speed. Um, what about hiring, right. Stu? Because this is one of the other conversations that we keep having in the United States and the fact that small, medium businesses in particular, even large ones are having to raise wages in order to get the workers that they need. What are you finding? Well, that's another thing, uh, Julia, that we're hearing is a lot of our suppliers and farmers, they only have about three quarters of the people they need right now. I think the stimulus, as great as it is for the economy, it's also motivating people not to work. So even at Stu Leonard's, we used to get 25,000 applications a year uh, for for a job. And right now we're tracking about 10,000. So there's less people out there. We could use chefs. We could use butchers. We could use fishmongers. We can use all sorts of people. We just can't find them in the market right now. That's 10,000 applications for how many jobs, by the way? Well, we'll, we'll be well right now because of summer and, you know, we're we give really good benefits, so there's going to be a lot of vacations among our, our long-term people. So we'll probably need about three, three or 400 people. Wow, but that's a lot of demand for relatively few places. Yeah. It must be a great place to work, Stu. <laughs> well, we were Fortune 100's best company for 10 years in a row. I know you were. Here too <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey, Julia, you know what I would just recommend to everybody who's watching is that there are specials going on at your different food stores right yeah. now. Like, I'll give, me, I'll give you an example. This is going to be like a rock star item this summer, ground chuck. You can get this right now for $2.99 a pound. That's, really, that's on special right now. So what I would recommend to the customers right now, you can't dodge these naturally occurring increases in, in food costs. But you can shop on deal and then freeze it. You know, let's learn what we learned in the pandemic there. Everybody was panic buying and freezing. So I would say right now, you don't have to panic buy because our shelves are full. Nobody should, like, like you know, freak out right now. Uh, there's plenty of food on the shelf. Uh, it's more difficult to get. Driving prices up a little bit. But there are specials. Get the specials and freeze it at home. And you won't even notice a price increase in food. Just one of the things we love about you. I vividly remember during the pandemic, you were telling me, you know, buy potatoes and peel them yourself and don't buy the pre-cut ones yeah. to save money as well. You see, Stu, you're full of great ideas. Feel better soon, please. We hope your arm recovers. And great Thanks. to chat to you, as always. Stu Leonard, Jr. Thank you very much. Stu Thank you. Thank you, sir. OK, let's move on. The game continues at GameStop, but a new player will be holding the controller. The darling of retail investors is changing its leadership as losses deepen. That's next. Welcome back to First Move, a change in leadership and the stock trajectory, perhaps at GameStock. The video game retailer tapping two Amazon veterans to help turn around its business. The company also reported a bigger than expected loss in the latest earnings. Its fourth quarter in the red in the last five. Shares are trading lower after more than doubling 
in the past month. Paula Monica joins us now. If in doubt, hire some Amazon workers. And I mean to run the place, not just to work there. What do we make of this, Paul? Yeah, I think it's a fascinating move, Julia. You have Matt Furlong and Mike Recupero coming in as the CEO and CFO of GameStop. Uh, Furlong most recently was running Amazon's Australia business. Recupero has various uh, you know, uh, backgrounds as uh, you know, uh, running, uh, being the CFO of different Amazon subsidiaries. I think what investors really want, though, that they didn't get yet is a strategy, both from these two individuals coming in, as well as Ryan Cohen, who is now officially the chairman, the ex-Chewy CEO. People really want to hear, what is the strategy? It's great that GameStop is going on a hiring binge and hiring Amazon and ex-Chewy people, but what are they going to do to actually turn around the fortunes of the firm? Because as you pointed out, they've posted another loss. Revenue did top forecast, which is nice, but they're still losing money. And they're planning to sell more stock as well, cashing in on their meme notoriety. That might be rubbing some investors the wrong way also. Oh, and by the way, there's an SEC investigation. Oh, and that's where I was going to go next. But before that, I was going to say, Paul, the strategy is what's the game plan? GameStop. You missed that opportunity. But I do think it's an mmm for memes when one of them says, look, we're talking to the SEC, they're asking us questions, and they kind of hint that they're talking to others too. Yeah, GameStop clearly said in an SEC filing that the SEC has contacted other companies as well. So what does that mean? Is it AMC? Is it BlackBerry and Nokia, a group of companies now, BlackBerry, AMC, Nokia, GameStop? People are calling them the bang stocks, a play on the fang stocks of big tech fame. I think a lot of investors, they have to figure out all of these meme stocks. It's great squeezing the shorts that may be unfairly punishing some of these companies. But many of these firms, they need to really articulate what their turnaround strategy is going to be because all of them have to figure out how to survive in a post-pandemic world. Yeah. Focus on the fundamentals and ASAP. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. Okay, fancy some century-old bubbles? Acker, the largest U.S. wine auction house, is selling nearly 900 bottles of vintage champagne. It includes a bottle of Brut Imperial from Moe and Shandon that dates back to 1911. The whole collection could fetch $10 million. Cheers to that. And finally, a sight to behold in the skies over parts of the Northern Hemisphere earlier today when the moon partially blocked out the sun in a partial solar eclipse. We had a good look. I couldn't see it. Here's another view, though, from NASA. You can see why they call it the Ring of Fire. And if you missed it, the next eclipse takes place on November 19th. But don't forget proper eye protection, as my mother always warned me. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, and as always, stay safe, connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. We'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.